this is a bit of a dated reference and it's going to show how old I am, but I heard this song and I immediately thought of Dana Carvey's Chopping Broccoli on SNL where he has, where he's just making it up and he's trying to emote, he's trying to emote and get all into it. And he has no right doing any of that. My brain immediately went there. Hello and welcome to another week of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where experienced musicians and old friends select an album from the 1001 albums you must hear before you die each week. And then we proceed to discuss, analyze, laugh about it. This week, we've been listening to Iggy Pop's Lust for Life. And of course, we'd love it if you played along with us. If you haven't listened to Lust for Life at all or haven't listened to it lately strongly recommend giving it a quick spin at the end of this episode what we'll do after we've uh, we've broken this song number of the songs down and the album down and complained about it quite a bit we'll vote uh, individually as to whether or not this album actually belongs on that list and if you really must hear it before you die we'll give you plenty of hot takes and deep dives and musical nerdiness along the way and of course at the end of this episode we'll announce what we're going to be listening to next week and talking about we encourage you to jump along with us here with me today we have tom tom say something for yourself hey i'm tom lifelong bass player love backup harmonies and super excited to talk about iggy pop and all the problems i have with this album next we have alan I'm Alan, a longtime musician. I don't care about lyrics generally, as long as there's a good rhythm section. That's enough for me. What about you, Adam? Um, Adam, I have a guitar hanging on my wall, so I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that you should put any more credence in what I have to say, but I know virtually nothing about Iggy Pop. I'm probably the, the lone man out here, but I'm excited to talk about this uh, 90-year-old woman. So, <laughs> and, uh, Right. And I'm Rob, and I love David Bowie, but I'm still not sure I can stomach this. Cool. So let's jump into it. I will start with a little background on the record. So this one was released in late August of 1977. It's Iggy Pop's second solo record. He had released another, his first solo record called The Idiot earlier that year, and this was after the breakup of his successful band called The Stooges. Iggy Pop's background is that he's from the Detroit area. He's kind of considered the godfather of, of punk. I'll just start out by telling you, I did the research on this record. I listened to this record a bunch, but I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself an Iggy Pop fan by any stretch of the imagination. And I think everyone on the call would probably say something similar. I think that's probably somewhat accurate, as I just mentioned. That's fair. I would say I'm more of a fan than I was, which is to say I was not a fan at all because I knew nothing, but I would not say I'm a fan fully. All I know of Iggy Pop was his persona, and I knew that I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never liked his persona a, a ton either, but I do appreciate the, the theatricality of stage performance, not necessarily his specifically, but I, I appreciate when people are really working hard on stage, and I do think he's obnoxious, but he's the kind of person you sort of can't take your eyes off of. So I've, that's kind of all, about all I knew of, of him other than a few of the hit the hit tunes, and I had listened to this record a couple times, but... On relist, and I discovered uh, quite a quite a lot to complain about. So, what happened here was 
huge surprise. He had a drug problem, and he no. also happened to be friends with David Bowie. In 1977, there were drugs? I refuse to believe that. And when those two things collided, David Bowie invited him over to Berlin and said, hey, let's let's collaborate, Iggy. At that, at that time, David Bowie had actually gone to Berlin also, sort of famously, to live for a few years. He made a trilogy of records there as well. And he, he actually went to Berlin for two reasons. This is Bowie both to kick his drug habit and to kind of get out of the public eye a little bit. And some people say he did some of his best work there. I'm not sure I would agree to that. Was Berlin some sort of like detox Mecca or something? Well, you know, <laughs> we're talking about detox. Berlin during like the time of East Germany, West Germany. Like Berlin yeah. was like a yeah, very different 70s. place. It was yeah. like, you know, a lot of the intellectuals and whatnot were coming to Berlin. I think, I feel like it was like this kind of like, hub of like creatives and dissidents and like political acts activism and thought was really all kind of coming together we've got no political activism or thought really on the um on lust for life but i can see that being like a very fecund environment for like artistic creativity i've never been there but i think it's always been known as an artistic community like you said tom and i think bowie wanted to get away from London and New York and the places where he was getting recognized on the street constantly and a little disappear into the crowd a bit. And then, you know, of course, he's also known as someone who just wants to change things up consistently. So when he was in Berlin, he invited his his buddy Iggy Pop over. He kind of felt bad for him and said, hey, let's let's work together on some songs. And in fact, where it really started out, I should say, is when David Bowie was touring for the Station to Station tour, he invited Iggy Pop on tour with him. He said, hey, put together a band. I know your last band kind of imploded. Why don't you come on tour, play some of those old songs, maybe work on some new songs. And they had a successful tour, came back and began recording. They actually ended up putting out both of these solo records in 1977. It's thought of that the first one, the one we're not listening to called The Idiot, is much more of Bowie's credit as a producer on both records, I should say. And he wrote material, the music for both records or most of the songs. Uh, for most records, and Iggy Pop wrote most of the lyrics for both records. But the first one is considered much more of a Bowie record, meaning he was much more in control of the production. This one, Iggy Pop was feeling a little more confident, a little more sober, perhaps as indicated on the the cover photo, which makes him look awfully wholesome. That was one of the first things that jumped out to me. <laughs> like, this is not the guy I was expecting. It's warrior for Jesus pose there. <laughs> it looked like white trash Indiana, like high school yearbook photo or something like that. <laughs> He's like, That's pretty I much put what on he my is. good flannel. You know? All right. Yeah. It definitely had a graduation photo kind of vibe to it. I felt like we have a, a friend in Portland who I feel like if he were to write a solo album that he would make a photo like that. I, I don't know why, but that's that's kind of the vibe I got from that photo. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, it looks it's clean cut, but it looks like it's hiding something very dirty. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think, first of all, maybe we should just level set and say that if you know Iggy Pop at all, if you know anything about this record, you must know the title track. Let's level set by just playing a little bit of the song Lust for Life, perhaps Iggy Pop's most famous song right now. that 
let's get just a little bit deeper into it. We're, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that song a little more specifically, but I think everyone. You mean that Jet song? Are you gonna be my girl? That's the one you're gonna talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Same goddamn song. <laughs> Yeah, it's actually I realized that it's the same beat as you can't hurry love. Yes, totally. Wow. All right. Well, I think it goes to show that you can't have you can't like have a beat that's just yours. Like there's you know, there's only so many combinations of beats and that's a very recognizable one. But yeah, that definitely has like Motown roots. Rosanna is the only beat that you can claim. Right. <laughs> For Caro and that shuffle, that Rosanna shuffle. All right. Sorry. Never to be repeated. Right. Oh, come on. I thought that the uh, the Purdy shuffle on uh, what Home at Last was the one that he does, like the branded beat of that. Yeah, boom, boom, you're right. Da, da, boom, boom, da, da. I yeah. stand corrected. So the story behind this record is that they come off a tour and they basically get into the studio and they record this record in eight days with Iggy Pop improvising most of the lyrics i'm sure that's going to blow your mind if you've been listening to it, no. looking at those lyrics yeah. i don't really i don't believe it and with arrangements a lot of arrangements in songwriting and keyboard playing and backup vocals by one david bowie which i think really helps the album along quite a bit but they did this quickly it was in a studio in west berlin basically two blocks from the wall as you mentioned it was it was it was a weird time to sort of be in berlin and even though it was an artistic uh, period they they really they really banged this one out. So, you said eight days, eight days, yeah, eight days. Wow. Do you have any info on to like why they did it in eight days? Was that a choice that they made? I gotta imagine David Bowie could just be like, I'm just gonna take up residence in this studio forever. When you're detoxing, man, the clock's ticking. You know, you gotta <laughs> strike while the iron's hot. I got about uh, you know a fortnight until I'm be back on the smacks. So let's get this. Let's get this done. I didn't read any articles, interviews with Bowie talking about this, that, that aspect specifically. But if I had to guess, it was because it seemed like they had come off of a successful tour as a relatively new band. They were kind of road hard, if you will. And that David Bowie specifically thought the key to Iggy Pop was this kind of live energy. And he just wanted to capture that, that live energy of the songs they had been messing around with at Soundcheck or playing in some format on the tour. Yeah, I will say this. I have seen Iggy Pop live. Not intentionally. I did not know I was going to see Iggy Pop live. I went to go see Pearl Jam in Camden, New Jersey at the Tweeter Center back in the day. I think it was the E Center now, but Pearl Jam was playing there and it was supposed to be Mud Honey and Pearl Jam. That's all that I knew. This pre-internet days, I wasn't like looking up like, oh, let's get all the info on it. And, and Adam, like you said, like Mud Honey gets done. I was excited to see Mud Honey and I was like, okay, cool. And then I was like, who is this old lady coming out on stage? Because <laughs> they didn't announce him. They weren't like, and now he Iggy just Pop walked, comes out. He just walked out. It took me like four songs to figure out that it was Iggy Pop until oh, he played Lust for Life. And right, I was like, right. oh. Damn, <laughs> Anthony Kiedis has really aged a lot. <laughs> really, seriously, though. And he looked he looked like chicken gristle. Like his whole body was like <laughs> loose skin, but like taut desiccated muscle. And like, it was pretty good. Honestly, like his live energy was really good. And everybody else there was going crazy. And I'm kind of looking around like, what, what are these people going nuts? Who the hell is this guy? It's you like put a Yule Brenner and a dehydrator is what you <laughs> No, but it was a really good show. It actually left an impression on me as being like a very, very high energy show. And this is, outdoor so for people who have not been to the 
current i think current e-center in camden it has like seats that are under an overhang and then it has a lawn area and i was out on the lawn area and it's still daytime like it's still you know it's the summertime it's like eight o'clock at night the sun is full on up it's hard to get into a show that way but i really got into it he really brought the energy he definitely has energy. I have noticed that just just watching videos of him and even even when he's being interviewed, he's he's quite a manic sort of personality. And like I said, I, I do respect people that are put they're leaving it out on the stage, even if I don't always love what they're bringing. Another important piece of context, I think we sometimes like to talk about what was on the charts when this record came out. And this will make sense to you when I say it, but it's easy to get lost in the fact that this record, even that lust for life, which you could argue. The 30 seconds we just listened to is the best 30 seconds on the record or the most memorable 30 seconds. Now, that sounds like a lot of other things. I mean, we talked literally about it. The drum beat sounds like a lot of other things. But that version of rock and roll, that kind of bar band, heavy, like sort of proto-punk or post-punk, whatever you want to call it, that sounds like a lot of other stuff. This, I looked at not only what was on the charts for this week, which is Best of My Love by Emotion, a disco song. Oh, yeah. But I looked at the whole of 1977 and it's all disco. It was 100% dance music. This was really early in that dirty punk infused era of music. It was not really what was popular at the time. Is this pre the clash? I don't think it was necessarily pre the clash, but I think that all those bands, I don't know when the first clash record came out. We could maybe look that up, but I do think that those bands were not, they were not leading the charge. They were not po- like that. That has turned into popular music over time. And it took a long time, I think, for bands like them or the Ramones, who maybe even put out a record that same year, the first records. But it, it was happening right around that time. So apparently January 1977 is when The Clash kind of became a major media phenomenon in the UK. So, yeah, it's like right around that time. So it was a time of much disco. And and I think one of the other things that I think is interesting is. They're in all that punk music. I've always thought there is a weird throwback to the 50s and 60s in the way they write melodies, the way they do backups. I think we're going to hear some of that on the Iggy Pop record. I always thought that was a weird connect, but I, I hear it in the Ramones too. I hear it in the Clash. Like they, they like they were listening to the Shangri Las and you know girl groups like that a lot. Well, a lot of that punk music, like I, you know, I had my punk phase in high school, which I don't claim to be you know some sort of like doctorate in. Punk is that where you got but, your scorpion tattoo, by the way? During that period of time? <laughs> no, that was my post-punk um, okay. you know, phase. That was my emo phase. That was my, my creed phase, if you will. <laughs> but if I, I think a lot of those punk songs had a lot of pop sensibility. So, you know, kind of one, four, five progressions, major chords, stuff like that. My understanding of punk is that, the, you know, it's obviously super edgy, but there's that pop, you know, sort of like backbone. They were definitely the the greasers, not the socias, though. Like, you know, listening to that sort of, you know, oh, that yeah. doo-wop stuff, but taking it the greaser, the greaser route, which I can appreciate. Exactly. And one last anecdote about this, and then I say we get into the songs, that I think this already probably wasn't going to sell that well. But, you know, with the backing of David Bowie, Iggy Pop had some fire behind him because of the Stooges. He had some popularity. But the record company printed up the first print, and then right after it got released, Elvis Presley died like a week after. And then apparently all the record presses were just reprinting old Elvis records. And so no couldn't way. get any new Iggy Pop records on the shelf. And That's I assume this affected other artists as well, but it's crazy. They were kind of bummed out at the time. 
I wonder if that did something for its kind of cred and rep, though. If it's just like, oh, you got the Iggy Pop album? Man, I've really been trying to get that one. Because like maybe you hear it, and then it's like unattainable, and it becomes that thing that you like have to go seek out and find, and it gets that sort Allure of like... Bills. Yeah, right. that like sort of yeah. elevated status of like, oh, I, I have it, now i got to listen to the shit out of this, because I, you know, it took me so long to find it. Indeed, maybe so. All right, let's do quick impressions of the record overall, then let's get into the songs. Tom, what did you think on the first listen? Yeah, so... The tracks that I like the most, I could definitely tell there's a heavy David Bowie influence. And, uh, you know, The Passenger is a good song. Lust for Life is a good song. Some of the songs were a little bit more, maybe like monotonous is the word I'm looking for. But they also just seemed like they could use a little bit better editing. Overall, I found myself coming away with a better impression of Iggy Pop than I had before. I had seen him live and he had a great live energy, but... My impression of him had always been like, you're just a fun drug addict who was friends with famous people who helped you get famous because they liked hanging out with you. (laughs) And I can't say that that's absolutely wrong, but I will say that this album was, it was enjoyable. It had peaks and valleys, but I definitely enjoyed it. I will listen to many of the tracks on this again and had listened to several of the tracks on this before, but even some of the ones I wasn't familiar with, I found them to be enjoyable. I'll listen to them again. Yeah, I was in, in sort of a similar boat. Like, I didn't know any of his music, honestly. I, I think I knew of him, as as was said earlier, about his his persona, like his his sort of stage theatrics. I, I feel like I kind of knew him as, like, self-mutilation on stage and stage diving and stuff like that. I also did... I was aware that he was associated with, with Bowie, but I, I don't think I realized that he was to this extent that they were really, like, co-collaborators on a lot of this music. And, you know, I'd kind of braced myself for abusive punk music in listening to this because of his background and his reputation as sort of that godfather of punk. But I was actually pleasantly surprised. It was, it was a much more like palatable listen than I expected it to be. One of the words I kept coming back to as I was listening to it was it felt very unpretentious except for one song, which I know we'll talk about later, but it felt like it was just very no frills, basic rock music. That reminded me a lot of the bands that Phil and I are, yeah, that we've all played with in, in bars that is just a guitar or two bass drums, not trying to do too much, just basic, honest rock songs. Um, and I, I thought that was actually kind of refreshing to listen to, to be honest on the flip side of that though, I do think it led to, there's a monotony to it. There's a repetitiveness. I, I think there's not a ton of depth to the songs. I, I kind of have, I struggle with material like this, that if a song is, you know, four to five minutes, which I, I consider long for a pop ish kind of rock song, I need some changes. I need some, I need a chorus. Yeah, I don't need it in every song, but I think it is a theme we keep coming back to a lot in some of these episodes where it seems like some of it was like a riff, a couple lyrics, and then let's just vamp on that for four to five minutes, which I think can work, but I, I don't think it worked on, on every song in this case. So I think I was really pleasantly surprised. I wasn't like super impressed. It didn't make me feel like, hey, this is revolutionary. But again, contrasted to what was popular at the time, I, I think, you know, maybe it was more so than I'm giving it credit for. So all in all, glad to have the opportunity to, to kind of listen to it and dig into it, but didn't really move the needle for me a, a whole heck of a lot. Yeah, it was mediocre. You know, I, it's mediocre 70s rock. Uh, nothing. There were a couple good tunes. Yeah, but you, you, you guys said, said a lot. I mean, they, they are, I do appreciate the plug-in and go sound very much like ACDC. You know, you've got three instruments 
and no effects. You walk on stage, you plug in, and you just start playing rock music. And there, there, there's an appeal to that, or I, I find that appealing rather. So yeah, this was you know I'll, I'll call it mediocre. It's conceptually appealing. In execution, yes. often it's not yeah. appealing. Okay, there you go. Yes. Yeah, just to I, I agree with everything that was said. At their best, they are a really good bar band, which I like. At their worst, they're extremely watered down, pretentious David Bowie music. <laughs> you know, without 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 the without the gravitas. I mean, right. Alan, you made a point. It made me think they have like almost like a blue collar sensibility to them that like I can appreciate. And like it, it made me start thinking about Bob Seger, like early Bob Seger, and about how like I could see early Bob Seger being connected to this, but Bob Seger was like more thoughtful about it. This is more like, Hey, we're, we're a good bar band. And then we're going to make an album. And Bob Seger was like, we're a good bar band. Let's get, let's become the best bar band in the world. And then we'll make an album about it. And this was sort of like, yeah. it feels a little bit more dashed off. Well, they're from the same, they're from the same place, right? We should say that sure. to be yeah. clear from, they're both from Detroit. Bob Seger came before, the Stooges even, I believe, I think Bob Seger was touring in the Midwest in the sixties. You know, he's, he's from that era, even though I didn't reach fame until maybe the, the early seventies. He did like the Beatles esque work, like they did in the cavern where he got really yeah. good in the lab before he came out, you know? And he's a, I mean, in my opinion, Bob Seger is a very talented singer and songwriter, or at least, at least at his best. I think he achieves much greater heights. Maybe one more thing is that I think what Iggy Pop is going for, and one of the reasons David Bowie tapped him on the shoulder and they became friends, they're trying to make something akin to what you might call art rock. They're trying to be artsy about it. Yes, there is some blue collar sensibility, but I also think he's kind of making fun of roots of rootsy music with some of these lyrics. He's he's sort of poking at it a little bit. And it reminds me, the other famous person that David Bowie helped with their solo career is Lou Reed a few years before this, who's has a very different personality, but it has a similar kind of, Hey, I, let me, let me help you turn your personality into a weird artsy solo career. No, I did not know that. Honestly, I did not know that David Bowie helped Lou Reed. And I totally, totally see the connection between just a fun drug addict that you want to like make <laughs> into something more so that you can continue to hang out. And like, you seem like a great guy to go on tour with. Let's, uh, let's get an album out for you. But I think Lou Reed's a better songwriter to be clear. But Definitely. anyway, Okay, so let's, I, I should also mention, I thought I knew this record a little better than I did. I had this one personal experience with this where I was driving a rental car from Amsterdam to Paris. This is like 15 years ago. And it was before Bluetooth or iPhones. So I didn't have any music to play. And I stopped at like a Dutch truck stop. And this was the CD they had. And I bought it. <laughs> they had a single CD. <laughs> Well, they had a couple, but that, this is the one I bought. It jumped out to me because of that wholesome cover. And I was right, like, okay, we'll right. listen to this. And then we just listened to it for whatever it was, eight hours straight. Jesus. So I, really, I really thought I was going to be more familiar with this, but it turned out uh, not the case. They're that forgettable? I don't know. I, other than Passenger. I think that was the first time I heard Passenger, and that, that had stuck out to me at that time. And, of course, I knew Lust for Life from you know the Train Spotting soundtrack, things like that. But, yeah, these other songs kind of sounded wholly unfamiliar. So let's jump into the songs the first song the title track lust for life we've already played a little snippet of it so let's let's play just a little bit more just to get you back in the mood i'm worth a million prizes yeah i'm a on the sidewalk no more beating my brains no more beating my brains with liquor and drugs 
moves, right? Like I don't yes. care who you are, no. what decade that that rocks. That's a classic. It, yeah. it rocks. It's a classic. I think that it's a little odd that twenty percent of the song is intro. Like they, <laughs> they go through like over a minute before they get to the lyrics on right. a five minute song. <laughs> I think they're waiting for Iggy Pop to start improving lyrics. That's possible. <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of the songs, Alan mentioned that they're a little too long for what they are, and I, I would have to agree a bit. But I think it's because either they recorded the instruments first or they're just waiting for him to get into his vibe, and he's spastically dancing around. I timed the second chorus. It's a minute and 10 seconds. The second the, chorus. The chorus. The second chorus. He just... So between the intro and the second chorus, we have 40% of the song is those two parts right there. <laughs> right. You know, I, I, when I was listening to this, I was picturing myself as the producer or the A&R guy or whatever role this would be in the studio. I think the producer is the one who should have taken it, which I think was David Bowie in this scenario. But like that insanely long intro the fact that they go through the entire progression and then they come around to the head and then he comes in, it takes away from the punch of when they do that change over the lyrics. If they had not gone all the way through the entire progression, if they had just had him kind of just ramp on the dent, 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 and then he comes in and then the first time that that chord change happens, he's doing, and the liquor and drugs and the sex machine, that would have brought way more punch to it and would have cut out 20% of the song and gotten it to a reasonable length. This does not need to be a five-minute song. Reasonable radio length in 1977. Yeah. I One thing, I have some tidbits, the fun tidbits about this song, but one thing that really struck me listening to it again on headphones is how understated the production is compared to modern production. Like, can you imagine if they made this song today, how much more compressed and loud every piece of it would be? It just sounds yeah. so distant by comparison it sounds a little muddy and that backup what is the what effect are they doing and or like who's gonna last for life it's so weird what is that make it through the process i mean it works really well but like how does one come up with that as the concept of like oh i'm gonna sing a backup harmony you know what you should do you should sound like a cartoon a bunch of helium (laughs) (laughs) i i want i don't know for sure but i wonder i've always heard david bowie was really into pitch shifting and doing weird things with his voice on his records to stack his voice on top of himself and make it sound less like himself in that way so I, I wonder if that was uh, that was definitely a him thing. We should say David Bowie wrote the music for this song. He wrote a lot of the song. He's credited as the songwriter on a lot of these, but then Iggy Pop is credited as the lyrics writer. And one of the things I thought was cool was he said, David Bowie said that this riff was based on a Morse code that they would see playing on the TV. It was like the Armed Forces American like military network when they were watching TV in Germany specifically it would come on before Starsky and Hutch and there was like a Morse code thing. And that's what gave him the idea for the riff. Sending out secret messages to East German spies or something like that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. 
the the other thing I read also is that uh, I saw this on Wikipedia and I wasn't able to corroborate it anywhere else, and there wasn't a lot of detail about it. But it claims it was composed on a ukulele. Really? Yeah. God damn it! You know, I am not even joking. You guys know that I am on the the East Coast. I don't have all of my stuff, but if I oh, he's going to get stand something. up right now and come back. I have my ukulele, and I was, <laughs> I was going to write a song night. on the spot. Right, go ahead. <laughs> I was I was about to be like, I wanted to learn the passenger on the ukulele because I was like, oh, that'd be a, that'd be a fun song to learn the ukulele because it doesn't change. But right. yeah, <laughs> this was composed on ukulele. I got to learn that tonight. That's going to be my that's going to be my project tonight. So. Is this the most recognizable drum opening of all time? Or it's got to be up there, right? Oof. Like, what What else is even in this category? When the levee breaks? Oh, the opening yeah. is Harvey Danger's flagpole sitter. That U2 song <laughs> with the hi-hat and the snare. Oh, yeah. That's, like, that's there, a pretty There's a handful, one. yeah. Oh, is that um, one you're talking about? Or, oh, what, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's Sunday Bloody Sunday. Sunday Bloody Sunday, yeah. At the risk of being mocked profusely, I do think the Dave Matthews song, Ants Marching, that snare, it's just snare snare on four, and it's pretty recognizable, and it's pretty iconic, but... um, Oh, that doesn't start with just drums, though. That has has the horn in it, I think, right? Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. You might be right. I know that live, he does it, um, you know, for the many times I've gotten shaken down at the Dave Matthews parking lot. (laughs) So... We talked about, yeah, we talked about similar to You Can't Hurry Love. I assume this is about junkies somehow, like all the songs, Liquor and Drugs. I, I did find a quote from the Doors keyboard player, Ray Manzarek, that said Johnny Yen, who he references, is a reference to a dope dealer over hmm. on Wonderland Avenue where those murders happen. And what's funny about that to me is I found in some of the articles they talked about how it's been used so many times in so many commercials, right? It's It was on the Rugrats movie soundtrack it's been used in commercials for royal caribbean <laughs> every car commercial right right and then so i there's an onion headline that says uh song about heroin used to advertise bank <laughs> yep so that was good <laughs> accurate so you know iggy pops laughing all the way to the bank obviously yeah i'm i'm interested alan what what did you think about this song? You're you're like the guy who I feel like came in like with a somewhat of a punk background. Well, I have no punk background. I know Rob has no punk background. I know Adam has no punk background. Like, does this hold up as punk? Does this read as punk? Well, I should be clear. I do not want to s- sell myself as some sort of like punk aficionado. In, in, by in this crowd, in this crowd, you're the I, most punk. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it, I wouldn't say it resembles like the punk. I think it evolved a lot. Or like this was would be considered like really early days of that style of music. Uh, I almost associate this with like garage rock, you know, it just has that sort of tone to it. What I did like about this is, and what I actually do like about a lot of punk rock is, you know, to kind of get a little nerdy, there's a really mid forward, like really grindy kind of bass tone that I don't normally love. It's not the kind of bass that I play, but it just, totally really like, yeah, it just cuts through. And, and I think it really serves a song yeah. a little well, dirt on the back end of those notes. You know, it's kind of like a nice attack, some dirt on the back end, like, tack, tack. yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit of drive, uh, you know, put that kind of bass forward, but I mean, it, I thought it was a great song, just a great kind of rock song. I mean, my only issue again, and, and it, it kind of applies to a lot of these songs is I just feel like they're sort of half. The thought that occurred to me in listening to this album was if I had written any of these songs, which I'm not really a songwriter, but if I had, I would still be hesitant to bring them to other people yet because I wouldn't feel like there was enough there. Right. And maybe that's my own, you know, kind of hang up. But 
there, there was something that felt let a little bit be, like let this be inspiration that you are a good songwriter dude alan i will say this a hundred percent and i'm i'm not being in any way facetious or sarcastic when i say this i've been playing music for 25 years i did not start writing songs until like four or five years ago and my big hang-up was always like this isn't good enough to bring to a room full of people and i like the first song that i would say that i really like wrote that was like a, a song that got recorded for an album it's just like a little guitar song. It's got one part, no change. And I was like, this just isn't done. I bring it to Rob. I'm just like, no, it's done. That's the song. We should do it, do that. And it's like, you know, stamp it look, done. Yeah. And it, it turned out great. And so I will say to you and to all of our listeners out there that are contemplating whether or not they're good enough songwriters, maybe you're not, but at least bring it to the table and say like, Hey, what's this? Cause then maybe you got a David Bowie. Who's going to be like, Oh yeah, I can turn that into something. I can make that better. <laughs> Or maybe David Bowie's the one that's coming up with the half-baked idea with the confidence of, you know, the earned confidence. <laughs> the earned confidence, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes simple is better. It's got energy, right? And it's got, it does have some great lines. I and mean, I think we're going to go on to make fun of some of Iggy Pop's lyrics, rightfully so. But I'm worth a million in prizes is a classic line. That's a classic so, line. So I do have a question for you guys. All right. Do you think that at any point in Iggy Pop's life, he has let somebody put their dick in his ear just to live up to the line yes i've had it in my ear before because he, he hammers that line a couple of times yes, I've had it. yes. <laughs> if anyone has it's him yeah i was like well, yes i've had it in my ear before i was like i bet what the no i bet plenty that? of fans have requested that from him yeah also oh and there's probably been some time where he's like and paid for right, it listen I don't have the money for this, uh, you know, whatever quantity of smack they sell it in. But uh, you guys are like, well, uh, listen, if I could maybe put it in your ear, maybe just call that square. It's not like you haven't done it before. <laughs> I have it on. What's sorry. next, Rob? <laughs> yeah. All right. Speaking of dicks and ears. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Moving What's on. What's the next to, song? Moving on to. <laughs> the the next song on the album 16 it's a rough one <laughs> yeah please go ahead not because it's a bad song but like the guy was like 27 years old and he's talking about like banging a sophomore it's no, so i think gross. he was 30 i think he was 30 and 77 yep let's 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 play a clip just so everyone knows what we're talking about Not only is it statutory rape disgusting, but this I think this is the worst song on a composition level or, or arguably the worst song. The instrumental track sounds the most stock to me. The vocal is terrible. There's no melody at all. Alan, you referenced, I have to admit, maybe this will get me some hate in the room even, but you referenced Anthony Kiedis earlier. This reminds me a little bit of Give It Away in terms of its complete lack of melody. And I think Anthony Kiedis and Iggy Pop are definitely related in the timeline from the same cloth <laughs> oh yeah they're linked in that way so what the, here's what's funny i actually did not think the song was terrible i actually really liked the main riff you know i thought it was just a nice like solid rock riff 
I could not get past, and this is just me. I think the cowbell, I think, I don't know. Christopher Walken may have just ruined the cowbell for everyone, <laughs> but the cowbell at the beginning is just after that. I really couldn't listen to, to much after that. I also, the, the whole like 16 piece, and maybe I suck at interpreting lyrics or interpret them differently, but I actually thought he was referring to himself being 16 and sort of vulnerable and, and that, you know, sort of thing. But something tells me I'm off the mark on that. Alan, to give some context to this. So uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, you guys watch that movie, almost famous, right? Sure. They have like the, the baby groupies that are like, that was like a thing. There's a woman, her name was the band-aids. Yes. There was a woman, her name was Sable star and she was romantically linked to like a bunch of rockers in the seventies. She gave an interview when she was 16. That was like, Oh yeah, I've had like sexual relationships with Iggy pop, David Bowie, Alice Cooper, Rod Stewart, Mark Boland from T-Rex, Robert (laughs) Plant. And of course, Jimmy page, who I can only imagine was like, (laughs) His thrusting was off in the timing and he kept messing it up. And like, you're not, but like, so we're talking like she was 16 when she gave this interview. So like when Iggy wow. Pop was having sex with her, she was 15 because apparently it started when she was like 14. It's just every single guy from the 70s, every rock star just gross as shit. Was that just a different time? I don't understand. I was like, I was revolted reading this. And then to have a whole bunch of songs that are talking about like, glorifying this it's so messed up and like i don't even think that's messed up through a lens of 2021 that should have been messed up through a lens of 1977 that was messed up then too so even if he was if if he was singing about himself when he was 16 he was probably i don't know hitting on five-year-olds at the time based upon the age gaps there or something don't don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not claiming that that was not happening or that that may have been what the song was about that was my initial read when i first listened to it like not contextualizing it with you know, it's funny because I, I researched this, but I, I would like to get some opinions on this. I think I probably already know, but like even before I knew this, Iggy Pop has seemed, we talked about Donald Fagan seeming like forever old curmudgeon. Like Iggy Pop has just seemed like forever old creep. Like the guy that shows up at like a college party when he's like 37 years old and just like, hey, what's up guys? How you doing? I brought the beer. Dad, tell you that when I used to live in this house, like that guy. And we're calling 37 old now. I no, well, for he was thirty when this record came out, and yeah, thirty-seven was at the college party. I do think he has old man face, even when he was young. He has kind of sunken eyes. You know, he's kind of handsome in that way too. But I think that's one of the reasons he's thought to have aged well. If he stopped taking off his shirt, he'd probably be thought to have aged pretty well, actually. So yeah, it's it, it's gross. Hey, hey guys, this is the only song credited to Iggy Pop as songwriter. No, <laughs> the audacity. Also, he's like, it, fuck this. To put it after <laughs> Lust for Life to me on the album is just I, that that puts it in such stark contrast that I, I think, well, I, I have another low light on the record that we're going to talk about, but this is this is not great. Well, I, I read that he was sort of coming into his own confidence wise with David Bowie while they were recording this album. Like they were living in the same hotel or same apartment. And he like moved to a different apartment in the same building to like get a little bit of space. And he was apparently like rejecting Bowie compositions for songs. So maybe he was just like, yeah, this song that I wrote is just as good as lust for life. Yeah. I don't see why they can't hang together. It's like, you know, it's like on an album, <laughs> like right? you got to start high and then you go even higher. So we'll yeah. do lust for life. Just and trade, we'll do 16 just trade and blows. That. No yeah. big deal. Yeah. 
me and Bowie. Okay, this song's bad. Let's move on to another good song, I think, which is called Passenger. Let's play the beginning of The Passenger. Are you sure that was the beginning of the passenger and not any other part of the song? Because it never changes. <laughs> I, I was gonna say I yeah. All right, so let, let me hear Rob why you dig why you dig this tune or anybody else. I just think it has a really memorable tone on that rhythm guitar. I think the chords are really simple but nice. I think the first thirty seconds is definitely why the song is famous. I mean, I agree. It's a little too long. It suffers from some of the same things we, we said the other songs maybe suffer from. They could be a little shorter or go somewhere different. But I, li- I like the vibe of it. And, you know, I am influenced by the fact that it's been used successfully. I can't think off the cuff of, of examples, but it's been used successfully in, in films and TV shows that I've also enjoyed. Yeah, I, I really like this song, too. I thought uh, this is one of those songs you feel like you know a song, but you don't know who sings it or, or where you know it from, probably from some commercial or, you know, movie or something. You know, this is one of those songs when it came on. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with this. Great chord progression, if if not beaten into the ground <laughs> profusely, you know, by a minute in, you know, no, no changes at all. I, I don't think there's a single sort of change at all for this, but nice chord progression. I found myself really like singing along to the harmonies as I was listening to this. Just you mean like, the, David, the David Bowie part? <laughs> the most captivating part of the song, the David Bowie part? <laughs> or the yeah. chorus where the chorus is just la, 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 la. But don't worry. They say that six times because there's five verses to this. <laughs> so I, I will say, I mean, I think this is influenced and reminds me of some of David Bowie's work at the time, which is he was definitely into long droney repeating parts. This is the era. This is right around the time he made Heroes, for instance, which is in its original cut seven minutes yeah, and basically right. never changes. Right? right. And right. I've never personally had a problem with that. I would take some issue with the fact that like uh, heroes never changes. The chords don't really change, but like the vocal treatment changes so much that that yeah. is like the core dynamics. There's no change in treatment on this at all. I'm I agree. It's definitely not as good as heroes sure. as a song. I'm just saying that that kind of like droney loop thing I think was a purposeful aesthetic. This one is not credited to Bowie. It's credited to the guitar player whose name is like Ricky Gardner. And here's something interesting I found. Maybe this will only be amusing to Tom. Not sure who else watches this show, but Ricky Gardner, Bowie's lead guitar player at the time, also the dude who plays on some other Bowie records like Low, claims he has electromagnetic hypersensitivity, just like Chuck from Better Call Saul. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's around like gigantic magnets all the time with electricity running. That's got to be bad for his health. It might Not a bit. be all the drugs that he's done. One thing I will say, if this was a two minute and 45 second song, it would maybe go down as one of the better songs of the 70s. At two minutes and 45 seconds where you hit the la 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 chorus third time in a fade out, that's a, that's a tight, fantastic song. But by the end of it, I was trying to, describe this in words and i don't know if i'm going to do it justice but like 
I've never been so excited to hear a song on an album and then by the end of the song, be so over that song. <laughs> I was so into it because I think <laughs> I kind of thought it was a right. Lou Reed song. And I was just like, oh, this is an Iggy Pops. It's on. Okay. Yeah, this is great. And then by the end of it, I was like, yeah, I get it, man. You're the passenger. And it's also not like he had a whole lot more to say. Because this is one of those ones where you can really tell that he's just vamping on those lyrics. He's making them up as they go along. He wrote the line, I am the passenger and I ride and I ride. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently also the song is, the song is about the fact that Iggy Pop didn't have a driver's license of Bowie's carting him around Berlin. And he's always in the passenger seat. That definitely tracks. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Right. One of the things I came across too in like digging into this album was that he felt a little bit of pressure to write lyrics to keep up with Bowie, who is obviously sort of a songwriting machine. And so he actually felt like the album would cease to be his if, if he weren't keeping up. And so I think that's probably where the rushed mm. aspect comes from and some of the, you know, off the cuff improvised lyrics. It's a little counterintuitive because one of the reasons he said he admired Bowie when he first went on that tour with him, I guess, is when they really sort of worked together. He got to know him. He admired him for his work ethic. He was like, this guy never stops. He's on, he's driving between the shows. He's writing songs. He's, he's practicing with the band. Then he's on stage. Then he's on to the next thing. He's like, that's how you work in this business. But this album, I don't think really shows much hard work. And it's, and it suffers from that. If you're trying to compete with Bowie, Bowie is like, I love David Bowie's work. But most David Bowie songs, I don't think are all that great. David Bowie put a ton of stuff out there, a ton of albums out there. Like yeah. how many studio albums did David Bowie put out? Like 20 some. And, like, yeah. and like within that, there are some real gems. If you're trying to compete with a guy who's just cranking, cranking, cranking material, 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 you take your time. And you bring like two or three really good gems to the table because, you know, only eight songs are going to make the album. And if you can have three gems on that versus like, well, if you're going to write 75 songs, I'm going to write 75 songs. And we'll pick the well, best eight. Like Maybe. Yeah. Maybe you just solved it, though. That's why he moves so fast. It's like, I just got to put out more material. They put out this and his first solo record in the same calendar year. Music yeah. by the pound. Yeah. Yeah. And and he did get I'm sure he's still getting checks every month from Lust for Life. Some some mailbox money every month. So it did work. Well, it wasn't yeah. Iggy Pop sort of down and out at this point in his life and career that I think Bowie was sort of resuscitating him in a way. Not the only time he did it, by the way. Bowie definitely stepped in to help a friend both get off drugs and maybe have a little career resurgence and get some direction. But then later in the 80s, Bowie covered the song I guess he had written for Iggy Pop's first record, which was China Girl turned it into a single. And now, now Pop gets paid for that. I think he did that another time, like a couple albums later. Yoink! <laughs> Let's just take that. That's brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. I like the song. Goes on a little too long. I think, in particular, that first. I I have something in my heart for that, like movement by thirds or six, that A minor to F movement. I've always liked that on guitar. I think it's because that kind of movement, right? It retains two notes. One note moves. The root kind of stays the same. Right. Get a little chromatic, like half step from E to F into the F chord. To me, it's always had a menacing element to it. And I just think they nailed the tone on that rhythm guitar. So to me, it's a win. Bravo. Yes, could have cut it down. Probably could have cut the whole album down. But I would like to point out that A minor to F on the ukulele is particularly pleasant to play because you're right, it's just you're just changing one finger. It's it's fantastic. Anybody who doesn't play the ukulele, it's really fun. It all sounds good. 
you should get one. <laughs> okay. So we're getting sponsored by Big Ukulele for this one, by the way. <laughs> oh, got it. Yeah. <laughs> Exciting. Let's move along to the next song we wanted to talk about, Success. This is a joint venture by, a songwriting venture by Bowie and the guitar player. And of course, Iggy Pop again writing the lyrics. I'll throw it to the group. What do you guys think? Uh, this was actually the first single they released off the record. They had the audacity to say like, no, let's pass over really? Lust for Life and let's release this as a single. Wow. You'd have thought that naming the album Lust for Life was recognition of the fact that it's clearly the best song of the album. But okay. I'm curious as to, I, as soon as the song started, I got a very specific vibe for a very specific song by a very specific band. And I'm curious if I have a load of this one. Did anybody else get a very specific band, other band vibe from this? Thin Lizzy, Whiskey in the Jar. As soon as it started, I was like, oh, this, that, like, that guitar sounds exactly like Thin Lizzy's Whiskey in the Jar. And, and I don't know why it was like, jumped out to me right away, but like, I stopped the song and I went to listen to Thin Lizzy. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is totally Thin Lizzy vibe, which came out like seven years before or something like that. This is right at the beginning of the song, right? Yeah. All right, let's listen to that now. something that i picked up on like that specific reference although i did like this sort of harmonized guitar intro like yeah, this was actually I, my favorite song on the album dude um, same here i actually have yeah i like this one i think it's fun and funny and i think it gets iggy's sense of humor across it's not yeah. like an amazingly composed song but i think bowie helped this is a good match to me of what bowie was thinking he was going for with iggy pop's improvisational style and kind of goofiness of lyrics plus Bowie's production, like when the backup singers are trying to compete with him at the end and stuff. My note was that like, part of the song. these lyrics do not deserve a callback. They do not deserve to be repeated right. again because they're not that good lyrics. I know that they're supposed to be funny, but they're like hearing them repeated back. I'm just like, wow, that was dumb the first time and the second time. It's <laughs> really, really dumb. I, I thought it was so obviously ludicrous though that I could like suspend my disbelief. It came around a little right, bit. Right. Yeah. On that one. Yeah. And then the oh shit at the end, like to me, it felt very on brand for Iggy, but also this was the one song, you know, more so than the others that I felt like Bowie had his fingerprints on. Like it, it actually felt like a David Bowie song that was just being sung by a maniac who was <laughs> doing kind of ridiculous call and response the entire song. This is what kind of turned my opinion a little bit of who Iggy Pop was as a personality, because I think it got he could be it would be easy to look at him superficially and see a drug addict who's kind of self-serious and intense and brooding and 
this kind of to me reminds you that he's just he's just a goofy bastard who's up there improvising and i think i imagine that's what bowie kind of liked of him and what made him want to work with him and it puts the other lyrics in context in my opinion in a good context it does but again we've talked about this before could you hang like could you imagine i could not imagine spending the night with a pop he seems like he'd be insufferable he really does and i i have had an uncharitable view of him before i have a better view of him now than i did before again i think that this song particularly gave me a little bit of the like goofball vibe but he also just kind of seems like an asshole and i don't know i don't know why i can't i still can't get down with him i think that this album's good but i can't get down with with him i think this is the song that was meant to showcase his personality though yeah this song in particular gives to me what i feel is his wheelhouse of a vocal range like i feel like that's Mm. actually him singing i feel like a lot of the other stuff that he does on this album is almost a character like when he does his low register thing, it, it like sounds like it's funny because Scott Weiland, I feel like, is a 90s version of Iggy Papa when when the Stone Temple Pilots would do like their joke jazz songs at the end of the album. And he'd do this low, deep voice. You know, and it was a character almost. And I feel like Iggy Pop is it kind of does the same thing. And this song in particular, it kind of stays in his wheelhouse where you actually hear the tone you know the qualities of his voice versus a lot of the other stuff he's shouting super you know a lot of the other songs are super distorted they're running that drive on the vocal mic or he's so low that it sounds like he's pretending to be somebody else well adam i i think you hit the nail on the head for most of this album it sounds like he's doing an impression of somebody else and even (laughs) if i don't know who you're doing an impression of it doesn't sound like if i was to catch you singing into the shower that's how you'd sound right Right. I almost I wondered if Bowie did vocals in some of the demos, then Iggy Pop was aping him because sometimes he does sound like he's does trying sound to sound of, like Bowie. Yeah, yeah, yes. that's a good bad point. Bowie. That's Bowie. a great call. Bowie has a very distinct vibrato in his low end, and I do hear I do hear a lot of that. It's not when goat he vibrato is it like camel it vibrato? Is, What's the? <laughs> it's I would call that good vibrato on good Bowie. vibrato. Oh, yeah. oh. Wow. very technical term. Good praise from Caesar. All right. (laughs) (laughs) But no, Rob, that's that is insightful as hell, because you're right. I imagine that for a lot of these. But even if it wasn't like he did it on a demo or something, he's just playing a guitar and being like, I have an idea for a song. And he's like, you know, singing along to it. And then Billy's like, "Okay, that's stuck in my head. I'm trying to do that from now on. Yeah. Yeah, because I did go back and listen to like Stooges, Raw Power, and and you know at least glancing like some of that other Iggy stuff. And I don't, I think his vocal approach is totally different. Like he's still trying to find his voice for sure. Well, how how intimidating must it be? You're in the booth and you're doing vocals, and the guy behind the board is David Bowie. <laughs> he's just like, I don't think you sound good enough on that one. You're like, yeah, of course I don't. Of course you don't think I sound good enough. You're like one of the best singers of all time. Okay, I guess we'll do it again. Take 37. Let's go. Right. Well, maybe. And actually, speaking of that, that kind of competition to try to be one one of the problems, I think, with Iggy Pop and and where he stumbles sometimes, he's trying to be a little too cool. Like, that's what I don't like about his persona. Mm -hmm. He's trying too hard to be cool. And if you're hanging out with David Bowie, maybe that's that's an inferiority complex come to life. Well, isn't that why Bowie wanted to associate with him was, was because of his, I don't want to say because of his persona, not to make it seem like it was a shallow relationship, but I think that's what he brought to the table was, was the, the affect and the, the theatrics and, and, and that 
over the top sort of personality. They both give off, uh, as the kids these days would say, big, thin, white Duke energy. <laughs> Speaking of Iggy Pop's, out of, out of the look on your face is that you don't understand what the thin white Duke is, which is I don't, it's both a David Bowie persona and a reference to his penis. Ah, uh, white Duke. Th- yes. Thank you for those of you listening along and are uh, as oblivious <laughs> as I am to the size of David Bowie's package. All right, thank you. Brought to you, the more you know. Go online. There's some ones that are like, you hope they're embellished. You really hope they're embellished. Well, moving on to the next song and what I consider a low point of the album, Turn Blue. <laughs> so, so, it sucks so bad. So as we were talking about his good vocal range, <laughs> I, uh, I was previewing, as you guys were, were finishing up the last song there, I was previewing a spot that I had picked out and I had myself on mute because I was just cracking up. <laughs> so what I'll... Do... I know exactly what the part is. No, I marked two spots. It's, to me, it's debatable which one is worse. But yeah. <laughs> so, Rob, I'll let you continue, but I'm, well, I'm very excited. Let's play a snippet. Let's just play the head of the song to get the vibe. Black Eldorado. Oh, rolling along down below my window. That black girl in the back looks pretty good. Christ, she's beautiful! So that was Turn Blue. Listen, this song is embarrassing on a lot of levels. And like even the good songs we mentioned, it is also way too long. In fact, it's longer. It's one of the longest tracks, if not the longest track. I think it's the longest track of the album. It's It's almost seven minutes. And it has the least right to be long of all the tracks. One of the things that occurred to me, one of the only justifications I could find trying to play devil's avocado with myself, as Tracy Jordan would say, this is the kind (laughs) of song that probably works live if the crowd is all there for Iggy. And they're eating completely out of his hand. Oh, I thought you were saying yeah. they're eating a lot of drugs at the time because that would be how that would actually work. They'd be eating mescaline all night, and just like oh, I'm just yeah. saying, how like you know, how would you get yourself to a state to think that this could work? It doesn't work at all in a recording, but I could see it working in a crowd just because people, yeah, when they're drunk and sweaty and excited about Iggy Pop, they're not really very discerning. That's my point. I think he went from doing, he's like, you know, listen, I've been doing a bad David Bowie impression this entire album. I'm going to do a bad Tom Waits impression for this this song. (laughs) And like, not vocal timbre wise, but like the style wise of, there's a million Tom Waits songs that are like this, but they all have lyrics that are way better written. It's almost like you didn't understand that like when people are doing spoken word poetry, they wrote that beforehand and you're trying to do spoken word (laughs) off the cuff poetry. Yeah, this is a bit of a dated reference and it's going to show how old I am. But I heard this song and I immediately thought of Dana Carvey's Chopping Broccoli on SNL where he has where he's just making it up and he's trying to emote. He's trying to emote and get all into it. And he has no right doing any of that. My brain immediately went there. But but the the way the reason that sketch, that old SNL sketch works is because that's. That's actually great. I think it is a great job. I would much rather listen to Chopped yes. and Broccoli. <laughs> Definitely. It's so bad. Yeah, it's it's terrible. I felt like it was he was trying to toss like 
a little bit of Zappa, a little bit of Queen, a little bit of ACDC into a blender and just see what comes out. Like it was, it was bad. Uh, I will say this is a little price sacrilege possibly among this group with the exception of Adam, but it, <laughs> it reminded me of some of the ridiculousness of some of early, like some of those early game Henji fish songs where I, it just was so self-indulgent and just ludicrous that it's, it sounded like, you know, rambling poetry, like really bad kind of poetry slam. Yeah. Like something you'd write in eighth grade. I have no problem making fun of that right. stuff. Yeah, You've got no bad. fish lyric defenders on this yeah, on. podcast at all. Nobody, <laughs> nobody's really like, hold on a second. Listen, Colonel Forbins. All right, let's get yeah. back. <laughs> but Phil isn't here. So I guess yeah, I have yeah, a little bit more, enough. uh, more, more runway but, here. All right, speaking about the lyrics, okay. This again, it, I, I feel like I had the same kind of vibe that I had on the song 16, where I was just like, oh, every 70s rock god was just a horrible person who like abused young women. I also got the sense that like he probably thought that he was being kind of progressive with all the lyrics that he talks about, about how like how much sex he wants to have with black women. He was probably like, yeah, look how progressive I am. But like, I think even for the time, black women were probably like, what the fuck, man? Come on. Like, <laughs> why? Without it. Thank like, you. Seriously. Yeah. Seriously, dude. Okay. Yeah, great. Yeah. You find me sexually attractive. Therefore, my validity is, uh, is uh, you know, uh, validated. Like, yeah. Anyway, you know what I'm <laughs> yes. saying? I feel like there are so many songs in the 70s where I, I even again like Lou Reed reference where it's, he just is like... Uh, even with the, all the colored girls sing, do, 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 do. he's probably like, yeah, look how progressive I am. I have black women singing in my band. I will also say that I personally am somebody who like when I am talking to people who are African-American, I will generally just use the word like black when I'm referring to people in conversations with them. Hearing Iggy Pop say it made me question whether or not I should do that. <laughs> I'm like, should I be saying that? Because this sounds horrible coming out of his voice. Just a just a little note. You reference "Walk on the Wild Side," also produced by David Bowie. Oh God, mm. that is a so hit maker. So, so maybe there is a through line here. He's but like I do want to question. I want to question his judgment. And Rob, if we could spin up the one minute and fifty three mark on this song. Oh, I and, I marked it too, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so here, just, just so we're all on the same page. I shot myself down Oh, mama I shot myself down I knew it. I knew that's what he had. What else could it have been? You're talking about when he penetrated a cat, basically. <laughs> it's so bad. I mean, he that's what a producer. The 80s and murdered ACDC. That's what a producer. Or, or, Rob, to your point, if this is the song where he vamps and people love it, you keep the studio version short, man. And yeah. then it's then the world is your oyster, depending on how... How Here's well you're doing with the crowd. How many Oof. takes do you think they have of this? Like, are there like five or six distinct takes on file and this is the best one that they kept? Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up, Adam, because I, I also wrote down that timestamp and wrote worst moment on the record. <laughs> By far. By far. <laughs> By far. Although he does do the cat, the cat screech again in the song. But yeah, but I think that's that one's the worst one. 
I want to know what was there any did Bowie approach him about making it an instrumental like at all? Did it come up? Like, hey man, I don't know about this. Uh, oh yeah, what what tracks get left on the cutting room floor? Or do they like record nine tracks and that's it? Like they're just like these are the ones we got no backups. We got to go with it. I don't know, man. And then yeah, I, I think it's also super pretentious to give it this turn blue this name that implies that it's somehow about heroin when i don't i don't hear any pathos in the lyrics or anything like that but you're trying to make me think it's something important so why is why is that about heroin with the turn blue well, i'm just guessing that it's about over- overdosing because that's what turn blue makes me think of and because mm. he was a junkie it's a total guess because the lyrics do not imply that at all that's what my thought was too was that that was sort of the genesis of the song i thought about it in modern terms in areas where they have like high IV drug usage, restaurants will put blue lights in their bathrooms because you can't find veins when the light is blue. Whatever that is, it like makes it so that you can't find your vein to shoot up in the bathroom. So like they talks about will the lights turn blue. I was like, oh, is he saying I won't be able to find a vein under blue light? But I don't think that's the case because that wasn't I don't think mm. a thing back then. But like yeah, I've never yeah. heard of that. It's because we haven't lived in horrible areas uh, of the country that have high IV drug usage for a while. Do you Alan, you're, still, you're still there, Just Alan. But so yeah. you know, <laughs> I also lived in Eugene, Oregon, which you know has um, its yeah. has its problems as well. But okay. I love that Ig- Iggy Pop um, gets sober and writes this song, and then there's like Steven Tyler gets sober and writes Amazing. Like it's just, <laughs> just two different universes. Of, I got to imagine, you art, know, artists. at some point. Oh, wait, no, I was thinking, don't want to miss a thing. I was thinking of the like, you know, they came to him. And they're like, we have a check. Tell us when to stop writing oh, right. zeros it's for the Armageddon soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. He's like, oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I got much it. different. All right. Sorry, Rob. Let's keep let's keep this train no, rolling. One more thing that I just want to uh, bring up about this song in particular is just that, like, again, I kind of cannot imagine why this would make an album did they not listen back to this track and i i find i found that to be like like you sat down i i could not get through this track it took me a couple of times to make it all the way through the end even the train wreck aspect of it was not fascinating enough for me to be all to get all the way through it how did I mean, somebody had to mix people? it so yes. a, some person actually did sit through it but maybe was just too nervous to go up to him and be like this is garbage yeah and david bowie how did you not be like listen eggs i get it i know (laughs) what you're trying to go for (laughs) well i mean back to what rob was saying if if this really was intended to be some kind of art rock there was that sort of confessional aspect to this the vulnerability to try to find something redeeming about it that but it's the equivalent of like you know when like the the artist like pees on the virgin mary statue or something like that it's like this is art very like when yoko Yoko screams in the uh in the moma lobby for like eight minutes have you seen that video yes No, you're right. In all, in all possibility, yeah, we have Bowie to blame for this, ultimately, because I think it, I love him, and I think he's produced so much great material in his life, and yet he's definitely trying. He makes some weird choices purposefully. He's trying to be polarizing a lot of the time. I, the, the thing it just made me think of was, you remember, this is only in the last 10 years or so, he put out a record, and the cover art of the record was his old record cover with a white square in the middle with like Garamond typeface that said the new album title. That's awesome. Like that is a really bizarre <laughs> that, choice. That's awesome. I was actually not aware it. that that was a thing. All right. Oh yeah. It's called the next day. Yeah. Look it up. It's, he took the hero's cover. He put a white square in the middle 
And then he wrote the next day in the middle in like some very basic typeface. Can we confirm it's Garamond though? Because we, we I don't know if it. it's Garamond. Yeah, was just, oh, was Jesus, to... you are right. Wow. Wow. That it's is bizarrely like... terrible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, from like concept to execution, that was like eight minutes. Right. Like, <laughs> No, so it's it's funny you mentioned that because I actually watched the documentary on HBO about David Bowie last night, the, the last five years of his life, and they had the designer of that talking about it. It was a long process. <laughs> the designer, right? Well, no, because he was basically came to he was he was working with Bowie over a long period of time to try to think of album possibilities for it, you know, including the title. Eventually, they decided they wanted to reference his past at, in some way, and you know, they they were flashing all the stuff up on the screen in this documentary. And the guy even said that once they landed on this, he said he like woke up in a cold sweat, like the night before it went to the record, the record company or even the print, the printing press called Bowie. He's like, are you sure? Bowie's like, yes, it's great. Can I get this in writing? please? How did the printing press not call them back and be like, Hey, I think you sent us the wrong file. There's no possible way that this is the one. This right, was like, deliberate. Right. Yeah. I mean, you sure you don't want like a pile of moldy wetsuits laying in a corner or something like that. Like anything would be better than that. It's, like fuck it, we'll go with the one with Comic Sans. That's gonna be the, <laughs> the winner here. Jeremiah Win Dings wins in the end. Yeah. Really bizarre. Okay, moving on to the last song we wanted to talk about, Neighborhood Threat. Let's play a little bit of that. Thoughts from the group? It's all right. It sounds like they used like an old pumpkin for a speaker or something like that when they recorded it. I don't know. I'm just not. It didn't. It didn't do a lot for me. This was one of those ones that I found to be completely disposable. Personally, I thought it had some "Don't Fear the Reaper" vibes at the beginning. It's not exactly a standout like as a single, but I thought it was kind of a cool garage rock deep cut. Like basically on my this listen to the album, this is the one that sort of stood out to me as as being new and maybe worth listening to again. And the reason being, I think it's a decent marriage, you know, in the context of the album, of the sort of driving rhythm from the band, plus Bowie's production, plus Iggy's lyrics, even though he is pitchy in the chorus. I guess he's pitchy a lot of it, but, you know, it's it's a straightforward rock song, but I, I liked it. I, I was conflicted about whether we should talk about this one or that song, Some Weird Sin, which I also liked a decent amount. But Adam, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I dig it because, well, I mean, it goes, the, the, the bar is pretty low, right? But it it goes someplace, right? There's, there's the structure to it. There's some core changes. I dig the intro. It just feels, it feels like a very heavy Bowie influence in this one, right? Like you can definitely tell that he wrote the music for this. So yeah, it was, uh, you know, decent again, lots of this album is mediocre slash decent. This was very unremarkable to me. I, I actually, in one of my notes, I literally wrote, couldn't come up with many notes for this because it was so unremarkable. And so I, I honestly don't really have much to add to it. I, the other thought that occurred to me when I was listening to this was that it, it sort of felt like if you see a 
like an indie bar band and this is like their best song, but they're a very mediocre sort of just local band that's playing maybe a 35 minute set because they don't have enough material, but this is what they close with. And half the crowd is like, yeah, like pretending to kind of feel it. But then the other half is like, this sucks. That's just kind of the vibe I had from this where like, if I saw a random local band play this song, this would be their best song, but it would still feel somewhat like uninspired. You know, I think that what you've also mentioned is that like this would be their last song if they were that random local band was playing. And I think that that is that colored my sensation of this song is I was just tired of listening to Iggy Pop by the time I got to the song. <laughs> yeah, I was tired of it. Like, ah, another one. Okay. It's not that much different from the rest of the stuff, except for the last song, Turn Blue, which was just horrendous in every way, shape, or form. Yeah. Like, this is not another one of those, but. Yeah, if your album is going to make it onto the list of an album I must hear before you die, you're right. No name, unsigned, terrible garage rock band shouldn't be able to write a song that is on that album. And it seems like, yeah, you're right. A terrible garage rock band could have written this song and it could have been their best song that they are like going to lunch on forever. But uh, it's a spoiler alert. Are you (laughs) where are you going to rank this? <laughs> I, listen, I, I agree that the song was right down the middle, but I, I don't agree that it's bad. I mean, it, it does continue the bar band aesthetic. And I wanted, when we talked about the songs, I wanted one of those songs to be represented that didn't exactly feel like a single, but also wasn't a low point. So to me, that's kind of what the song represented. So I, I'm not exactly denying what y'all are saying. I feel like this song has the potential to be better if it was mixed better. Like generally I, I understand the overall vibe of kind of that grungy, like where we keep saying bar band, right? If there was a little more compression, it was mixed a little better. Maybe they made use of stereo a little bit more. I feel like this would be a much more compelling song, but by the end when everything's going crazy, it's just, it's just a little too loud. And uh, there's, I will there's not say a this. ton of definition in, in the instrumentation. One of the tightest songs on the album it's under three and a half yeah. minutes. I think it's the second shortest song on the album. So like one of the tighter songs on the album, but for some reason to me, it did not feel necessarily shorter than like the five minute and 20 second long lust for life, you know, like, which is not a, it's not a, a mark in its favor. I, I guess, I guess another reason I liked it and I, I felt similar about some weird sin that to me, even though he's known as the godfather of punk, and maybe it's because I don't know punk music as much, but I kept drawing this line that skipped over punk and went right into the 90s with bands, indie rock bands from the night, like Queens of the Stone Age. Oh, totally. With yeah. this kind of like crunchy guitar. And and by the way, just a little tidbit, I finally figured out the line in that Spoon song, we make love to some weird sin. We seek out the taciturn. That's the way we get by. They have to be referring to this, right? Hmm. I never made that connection. It's from the Spoon song, The Way We Get By. That's, That's what he says. Song. Yeah. That's also hot bass. And one thing I will say about this album, not hot bass. <laughs> it's not hot bass in this entire album. I, I think I the rhythm section sounds a little good. Bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm not, I don't think, I wouldn't hold this up as a, an exemplar of bass bad. music. No, I think for, it, it serves the song, I think for one, or, you know, it serves the songs, but I think there are a few moments where, you know, I sort of alluded to earlier, there's, there's a, there's a bass presence and it's just enough to push the song forward. But 
I don't, I wouldn't hold this up as the, as a base like showcase, but I, I definitely would not say the base sucks. On There's the a base. Though. I didn't say the base sucked. I said not hot. There's a tonal <laughs> aspect to the base that I think is good, but I think it was also all played with a pick and uh, you know, it's very That's much invalid. in that vibe, not, not invalid, but you know, are, are you yeah. provoking a, a pick, a, a base pick debate here? Cause I thought we were trying to tighten these up a little bit. Is there, is there, <laughs> I didn't think that there was a debate to be had that pick part base two. Is better than finger base. Come on. Oh, it's not better, but it's, I would not dismiss it uh, out of hand. I didn't dismiss it. I said it's worse. It's also not hot. <laughs> Normally not hot. <laughs> Fair anyway. enough. A- anyway, I, I, I think you can draw. Yeah, we, we referenced a bunch of 90s bands in this conversation. And that to me is what I kept thinking is that it, it reminds me of that where they had kind of skipped over the crungy vocal Johnny Rottenness of the thing focused on a tight. I think it's a tight rhythm section. Actually, I should have mentioned the drummer and the bass player are brothers. And they're the sons of that guy, Soupy Sales, who was like a comedian in like the Frank Sinatra like era. Yeah, that's... I'm picturing God. gigantic bow tie. Uh, listen, again, I'm not saying that the rhythm section is not tight. I am saying that like the bass playing is unremarkable. It's utilitarian. It fits where it needs to go. Gets the job done. But at no well, point am I like... Should do. I, that's not necessarily what a bass player should do. No, I, I disagree. Okay, let's go to let's go to another personality with like strong Iggy Pop vibe, which is Anthony Kiedis. Why is that band in any way good and famous? It's all because Flea is a gigantically awesome bass player. I, okay, I'm not saying that a a really great bass player cannot add to a song, but what I'm saying is this type of music you do not need. If Flea was playing in Iggy Pop, it would sound terrible because he would he would try to do too much. I, well, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think you would do tasteful stuff that was not roots. Well, but you're saying, but you just said that you thought Chili Peppers are great because of the shit he adds to it. So if you just took him and put him in Iggy Pop, Chili what, Peppers why? are a, Chili Peppers are a funk band. I'm more pointing out that the bass is just like super rooty. It's super rooty. It's super like right on the rhythm. And like, yeah, I will. It does not detract from what the song is trying to get across. But I don't find it to be additive necessarily. I think that there is a lot more interesting stuff that could have been done in the bass realm where they could have been additive and it would have probably broken up the monotony a lot of, of a lot of these really long songs. That's fair. This has all been very, very stimulating. <laughs> listen, <laughs> but I think it's time to wrap it up with some it, votes. You know what? Everybody loves to listen to a bass solo and nobody loves to <laughs> nobody <laughs> nobody listen to a bass solo. The only thing you love more than listening to a bass solo is listening to do bass players talking about bass playing. <laughs> Do I hear a spinoff podcast uh, brewing here? Uh, Talking bass. (laughs) All right, let's go around the room. Does Iggy Pop's Lust for Life belong on the 1001 albums you must hear before you die list? Must you hear this album before you die, Tom? Yeah. Yeah, I think you do. The album in and of itself, I don't think is that great. But like, if you're in a conversation with people about music and you're trying to be taken seriously and you've never heard Lust for Life, you've never heard The Passenger, and you can't reference one other song in this album, you're going to seem like you don't know what you're talking about. So for that reason alone, Iggy Pop is such a known name, such a known quantity. It's not that long of a listen. So yeah, 100% worth your time. Listen to it. You will be better for it. Yeah, I kind of went back and forth. I mean, I feel like we spent more time talking about David Bowie than Iggy Pop. And so what does that say about Iggy as an artist? Having said that, I agree with what you said, Tom. I think he's he's an iconic 
figure this is often held up as one of his best works. And to me that usually if you meet that criteria, I think it belongs on the list. Is it my favorite album of all time? No, but it's fun. And um, I think it, it belongs on the list. Yeah. When I, when I think about, I, I made a reference to Scott Weiland and STP and there's an instance where I think you have somebody who took the Iggy pop sound and persona and did it way better than Iggy Pop. The reason why I like STP, they do the distorted vocals. He's got that vibe. His voice is similar at points. STP just has better songs, song structure and everything. So aside from the fact that, that Iggy Pop is a, is a pop culture uh, staple, the influence that he's had over the years of, of people imitating and, and taking that style, yeah, I, I grudgingly would say yeah, you should probably listen to this. If the, having not listened to any of his other albums, if this is <laughs> if this is considered the slice that it, that represents what Iggy Pop is and does, then yeah, Scott Weiland didn't quite stick the landing on the heroin addiction part, though. He did Ooh, not. He had the skinny. <laughs> he had the skinny I'm jumping just saying, around. Iggy Pop clearly is beating up his body, and yet he he persists. He manages. I mean, he's he is older than I probably will be. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Rest in power, Scott Wyland. Yes, it's a yes from me as well. I it's got its low points as we've talked about. It's got its peaks and valleys. But if the premise is you're going to go through your life, you're not going to hear the song "Lust for Life." That's that's ridiculous. It's part of the canon. Iggy Pop is out there as a personality. You need to have a sampling of him. And the best of my knowledge, this is the best sampling you're going to get. So you must hear it, Iggy Pop, baby. You're on the list with David Bowie standing right beside you, casting a little bit of a shadow, but that's okay. Great job. Now you can rest happy. What's up on for next week, Tom? All right. I got the Albinator 5000 better than would you have the Albatron 7500 last week or whatever knockoff Bobo brand you were trying to bring to the table. <laughs> we're back, I'm really hoping back to the source, baby. I'm hoping you can program the sound of the Albinator to to be that cat screech ah! from <laughs> from Turn <What>? Blue. <laughs> yeah, I'll get digitally penetrating cat dot wave. Right. <laughs> I'll plug that in. <laughs> Sorry, continue, yeah. sir. All right. So, what do we have on tap for next week? I know you guys are all ready to listen along with us. Drum roll, please. We have. Ooh, Lawrence Welk's Liechtensteiner Polka. <laughs> no, I'm I'm just kidding. It that is one's the for me. I mentioned I'm on vacation next week. That that one was that one was for Adam. That's a little little throwback to Adam, Mr. Lawrence Welk referencing. But no, we have the Bee Gees Trafalgar next week. All right, pre disco Bee Gees. Oh, very cool. I am very interested to find out more about this album. I hope you Brothers all want to listen Gib. along. Very exciting. I think Australian or English or something. No, they're from Manchester, the same place the Smiths oh, are from. Oh, yeah, yeah, Manchester. Okay. English white trash. Let's listen to it. <laughs> God almighty. Wow. They probably okay. That's true. Great. Well, we look forward to listening to that Bee Gees album this week. If you enjoyed us this week, if you have more complaints about Iggy Pop, if you think we're completely uninformed on the topic, please let us know. Our email address is 1001. That's the number 1001 album complaints at Gmail. 
write us, tell us everything that's on your mind. We'll take it into our hearts somehow, some way. <laughs> For next week, you should, of course, listen to Trafalgar. And in case you didn't catch all the references to the various songs we made, I know we made a lot this time. We've compiled a handy Spotify playlist for you. It's in the notes of the episode. So until next week, I've been Rob. I have been Tom. I've been Alan. And I'm Adam. Boosh. Boosh.